$46.9 billion. The headline profit figure from Saudi Aramco's first half results is staggering. The company also says it is ready for a planned IPO, possibly next year, and lines up a stake buy in Reliance Industries' oil-to-chemicals business. We'll go through what that all means. You're listening to the Business Extra podcast, coming from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. First, here are the other stories you need to know about from the national.ae. Chinese tech giant Huawei has unveiled an operating system for smartphones and other devices to help it should a threatened cut to its access of the Google-owned Android operating system materialize. South Africa's rand is the world's worst performing currency, a victim of global trade tensions, but also domestic troubles that are causing investor anxiety. And Etihad Airways will not lodge a new expression of interest in India's Jet Airways business because of unresolved issues concerning Jet's liabilities. Welcome to the studio, our assistant business editors, Kelsey Warner and Chris Nelson. How are you guys? Hey, good. Good to be here. Good, thank you. And we're going to get on the phone now, um, our energy correspondent, Jennifer Niana. Uh, So Jennifer, very impressive headline numbers, as I said, from Aramco. Uh, Would you agree with that? The numbers are impressive. We knew that Aramco's earnings were very high, uh, higher for last year, for instance. It was higher than five of the world's oil majors combined. This is when they made um, the financial results public just before their bond. And even now with their first half results, which they made public for the first time, uh, net profit was 46.9%, even though it's, it's, it's around 11% lower than last year. It's still impressive when you compare with, with the biggest companies in the world. Aramco was and still is the most profitable company in the world. Um, in terms of, of their financial health, they remain sound. Their revenue for the first half um, of 2019 was $163.9 billion, uh, only a little lower than uh, what they saw last year. So all in all, it's it, it sound financial results for the first half, in spite of the fact that the price of oil for the first half of this year is much lower than what we saw last year. So it's a seasonal, not a seasonal business, but a cyclical business based on the global price of oil in their numbers in your report, the national.ae, uh, the average price they realized per barrel of oil for the first half of this year was $66.00. A year yeah. earlier, it was 69. So that speaks to, to what you, you're talking about. And hence, as you said, the profit is 11% lower. But still, um, their profit, $46.9 billion. You compare that to Apple, just over yeah. 30 billion, right? Yeah. And Apple but is the, the most prof- profitable listed company in the world. The, the profits are incredible in spite of the fact that the, the prices are lower. This time last year, in the first half of last year, we saw prices above 65 and for the second half of the year, they were averaging 75 before prices crashed around November. And for this year, they remained in a tight band between 60 and 67, contained by, you know, low uh, demand growth um, pressures because of the trade war. So all of this sort of um, caused this decline. But even then, it's um, these are significant profits. And Aramco, for the first time, um, had a call with investors, potential investors, and they were very interested in, in you know, 
what the future holds for Aramco in terms of their dividend pay, um, you know, how the company is, 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 will structure future profits for its shareholders. Um, if you look at the financial results for the first half, the profit was 46.9, and they paid out around 46 um, in dividend to its, its sole shareholder, the government. And they also had a special dividend pay of $20 billion. And all of this is very attractive to investors looking at Aramco, especially when the company is preparing to uh, to, to list. And uh, the chief financial officer, Khaled el said in the same call that um, the company is very prepared. They're just waiting on the government, uh, you know, to act. But in terms of being IPO ready, the company is ready. And with figures like this, and with you know, with assurances to, to future shareholders that they are that they are a generous company, that they you know they have a dividend policy, even though they haven't disclosed it um, publicly, it, it it shows that the company is financially strong and and and, and um, as they say, IPO ready. Yeah, Jennifer. I mean, when you you dialed in uh, to listen to the CFO speak uh, in sort of a historic. Uh, outing for Aramco to disclose earnings this way, and were you were you expecting him to to say that they were IPO ready yesterday? No, we didn't expect him to make any uh, any comments. But most of his comments were forward looking. Um, they said they were, you know, he you know he also announced plans for this um, five million capacity pipeline linking um, mm-hmm. the eastern province of Saudi Arabia with its western province. They they're looking to increase capacity to seven million. By September, and these were questions uh, from from investment banks in the U.S. and looking to see whether Aramco is 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 a safe and secure place to invest. Um, and also, they 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 indicated that they are a company that is that will be looking to spend and looking to make wise um, investments. A lot of questions were asked on this new um, acquis- new potential acquisition um, by Aramco in India. They signed a letter of intent yesterday um, with uh, Reliance Industries, uh, where they said they would acquire India's largest, the world's largest refinery, which is in the western coast of India. And they're also looking to take a 20% stake in, in oil to chemicals business, which has been of strategic importance to Saudi Arabia as they look to move more into chemicals. They've acquired um, Sabic. They also have you know, plans um, in the billions of dollars on the western coast, uh, when it, they're building a $20 billion oil to chemicals refinery on the west coast of Saudi Arabia. They really show themselves to be um, a company with their eye on the future and with their eye on future trends, like tapping into downstream, um, having a strong gas strategy. So these were the questions that um, that investors were interested in as the company prepares to, uh, to list. Uh- with the talking of the reliance um, potential deal, I mean that comes at a good time for the company, um, which is you know attempting to reduce its thirty-two billion dollar debt according to Bloomberg yeah. estimates. Do you see Reliance um, pursuing uh, further deals along these sort of lines? Uh, reliance, the deal with Reliance comes just after um, Reliance opened up its retail, but few retail business to BP, um, and this is a company that aggressively looking to reduce its debt to zero. And that, that, that's what Mukesh Ambani said to his shareholders. Um, it's, so this is an initial step. Now, Aramco has signed an MOU to invest with a group of 
um, Indian state refiners on the western coast. They're pursuing a plan uh, refining integrated refining facility with Adnoc in a, in, a, in a JV, which is around 44 billion. We, we don't know exactly what their share of this planned investment is. So they have commitments in India in the pipeline. Um, and now with this uh, refining stake and oil to chemical stake, I think we're looking at around 15 billion. The, the business is about is, is valued at 75, but it, but Ramco's stake is likely to be 15. So they have significant investments planned for India. So I'm not sure if they will look for further business with Reliance at this stage, though it can't be ruled out. Um, Mukesh Ambani met with Khalid Al-Fala, the Saudi oil minister, end of last year, and they've had discussions in the past. And I think, you know, it's, um, it's, it's uh, only a matter of time before they look at growing within the Indian market. One of the concerns for Saudi Arabia, interestingly, is uh, they've lost, I wouldn't say they've lost market share, but they've been displaced by Iraq since 2017. Um, prior to that, Saudi Arabia was the biggest supplier of crude to India. And in 2017, with rising production from Iraq, and they offered better deals, Iraq is the, is the biggest, is the top supplier for crude for India. And I think the Saudis have realized that they need to step up their game. And one of the ways to ensure market share is to make strategic refinery investments. And this is what, you know, we see them doing with uh, the Jamnagar, Jamnagar refinery that they um, that they're looking at with Reliance and with the planned refinery development on the western coast of India in Ratnagiri in Maharashtra. It's interesting because you know the IPO questions that will come up um, mm-hmm. will be about sustainability of this kind of profit level. Uh, the yeah. the US is the world's largest producer of crude now. Um, mm-hmm. It's its demand from that market for crude from the Middle East is less than it was. And so over mm-hmm. the years, they've been looking eastwards, as you quite rightly say, strategically. And also mm-hmm. producers in this region have been saying, you know, we can't just rely on selling barrels of oil. We have to get the added value. It has to be about mm-hmm. what we can extract um, all the way up mm-hmm. the value chain, um, you know, all kinds of chemicals, plastics. But in the end, it's all about getting it to market. And so India, China, um, other fast-growing yeah. markets. Th- this is this is the key. So, um, you know, any would-be investor in Aramco is going to be looking for these kind of long-term uh, strategies that can ensure, mm. even as oil prices move up and down, that they can retain their profitability no matter what. I think one of the concerns uh, we've seen uh, from oil producers, especially oil producers in the Gulf, um, is demand security. Uh, you know, a few years ago, countries like India and China were looking at, you know, energy security, supply security. Now that's no longer a concern. There's enough supply. Uh, but securing demand and locking in demand has become uh, a big concern for producers in the region, which is why uh, with this deal with Reliance, they've also agreed to supply 500,000 barrels to, uh, to Reliance to feed into this, to this refinery in, uh, in, in Gujarat. The demand security is... is is, is a main concern driving uh, Aramco's investments in India. Um, we've seen Adnoc do similar uh, investments with partners in terms of um, exploration and production within Abu Dhabi, and they're also pursuing assets abroad. So this is something that we uh, we see Gulf National Oil Companies pursuing in the future, and locking in demand will also assure uh, potential investors that you know Saudi Aramco has um, you know has significant market share, especially at a time when, as you said, um, U.S. shale is looking to uh, 
to get into these markets. And more broadly, uh, other risks is, is U.S. trade, U.S.-China trade tensions affecting the global economic outlook. Worry about yeah. demand for oil. Um, as we've been alluding to, a, we're in bearish territory for crude prices mm. at the moment. So more broadly, um, you know, you've been writing about this. Um, what, what's what's the outlook for for crude prices going forward? Uh, crude prices uh, will likely remain in bearish territory unless um, OPEC, when they meet in September, decide to cut production um, further. Uh, but for now, they remain below sixty dollars. Um, you know, most analysts say that prices won't exceed uh, sixty-five. Will remain within this tight band. They've been constrained um, by the fact that there's poor economic activity and demand for oil isn't growing significantly. The IEA, for instance, has said has has revised its, its prediction for oil growth, oil demand growth, saying for the, for the remainder of this year they expect oil demand to be growing uh, by 1.1 uh, million barrels per day. Now, the IIF uh, came out with their own report saying this will be um, lower than that, around uh, a million barrels per day, and they say for next year it's around 900,000. China was the biggest driver for demand, and we've seen the economy con- uh, you know, contracting um, to, to some of the lowest growth levels seen in, in three decades. Um, for the second quarter, the economy grow, the, grew at 6.2%. Uh, so we see these demand centers uh, showing um, less economic activity uh, because of the trade war. India is quite interesting because the economy is still... Um, even though they've been going through their own difficult times, it's still a very significant um, economy in terms of, you know, the huge population, uh, the increased demand for plastics and product, and also for crude. Uh, you still see um, a middle class that's aspiring to buy more cars um, and consume more. So, you know, countries like India will continue to be a demand center, but in terms of the current economic climate, the demand for oil is not as significant as we've seen in previous uh, in previous quarters. Uh, Jennifer Niana, the Nationals Energy Correspondent, thanks so much for joining us down the line. We'll speak soon, I'm sure. Thank you. You know, guys, it's, uh, the Saudi Aramco results themselves, uh, we, we mentioned this a little bit about the, the historic earnings call, if you like, the fact that their, their CFO was on a call um, with investors, with analysts, with journalists, talking about the results for the first time ever mm. um, for Saudi state oil producer. Um, equally, uh, the the dividend the numbers of the dividends Jennifer was saying you know forty six billion in dividends that's pretty good um, you know that's a fair fair windfall um, for their shareholder now there there were some numbers being done uh, by journalists much smarter than me um, who, who who worked out that based on these dividends the the value of Aramco could be an IPO the you know the value of the whole company somewhere between one point two to one and a half trillion dollars mm-hmm. now. When this IPO was first mooted, they were talking about two trillion, but then we've gone back and forth over how much it could be worth. But one and a half trillion is not bad. Not bad. It gets us almost there, and uh, it you know as Aramco becomes more you know uh, transparent in the rise up to this IPO, um, they are seemingly delivering on the numbers that have been penciled out on backs of napkins by people who maybe didn't have a whole concrete idea. Now we are historically getting a concrete idea for the first time. And yeah, these numbers are, you know, to put them in some sort of ballpark, they are in a class of themselves when you think about 
you know, Shell making $23 billion in profit in 2018 compared to Aramco's $111 billion in 2018. Um, yeah, it's in a league of its own. And there is huge pent-up investor appetite as well. Uh, and this nod to transparency, I think, will only encourage it further. I think also there's the, um, you know, from a, uh, outside of the region, the investors' uh, perceptions. Now, of course, they have, as we say, a, a clear picture of the company and its financials. I mean, another huge figure being its assets, which rose, you know, from the first half last year to first half this year to just under $380 billion. Um, uh, massive numbers. But I think also it's interesting, this pipeline increase that Jennifer was referring to, from those who maybe are I have not so much of a good understanding of the region. It may take away any lingering um, concerns they might have had over the situation in the Strait of Hormuz. Um, and I think that will just bolster um, investor appetite for those who are maybe not quite so sure of the situation. And the two big takeaways um, for me, as you mentioned, Kelsey, the transparency. I mean, this raises the game for everybody else in Saudi and the wider region if Saudi Aramco is you know, getting on these earnings calls is being very mm -hmm. open and upfront with investors from around the region and the world is giving these numbers up, then nobody, you know, that's the benchmark for everybody else. No one can say, well, you know, no one else is doing it. Sure. So. It, it becomes a lot more exciting to be, be a journalist around here. Uh, more. I'm, all, I'm always excited, Kelsey. I have I'm to say, <laughs> I don't know how much more I can get excited, but yeah, I, I take your point. It just, it makes it just, it's so compelling to have more stories being told with real numbers and, um, you know, getting your arms around some of these huge behemoths of companies who are real titans and in, in leaders in what they do. Uh, it's exciting. The second main thing is, uh, you know, we talked a lot about the big tech companies. We talked a lot about them. And um, I'm going to make a big call here. I'm going to say the, the this era of sort of these big tech companies as sort of uh, companies as countries, if you like, mm. is moving to now countries as businesses with Saudi Aramco, effectively, that's what it is. And if it does IPO, that's going to be the beginning of something, you know, pretty crazy. Actually. Sure. Yeah. It's, it'll be a new frontier for this region. For the world. I think, yeah. you know, that, that, those kind of numbers, the scale we're talking about for an entity like that to be listed, you know, off the bat, not growing as Apple grew. Sure. That, right. Know, Day one, what, what that will look like. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not talking from, you know, the investment banker. I'm so excited about fees point of view or, <laughs> or whatever stock exchange gets the listing. But just in general, as, as, as you know, where that moves business and commerce and investment in general to have a company like that publicly listed is a real game changer. Mm hmm. Guys, let's stay with energy, but perhaps move along the sector. Um, renewables, uh, we ran a, on, on the national.ae, we ran a very interesting Bloomberg piece about the Danish city of Aarhus. I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Um, apologize if I've mangled it. Chris has it. a really good pronunciation. Chris? Aarhus. Very good. Very good. Um, that place. Um, <laughs> it's become a renewable energy hub. Um, companies like Vestas Wind Systems, um, also a number of power traders have been uh, building up their presence over the years. Um, it's a really interesting case study, uh, and particularly in this region, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, elsewhere, looking to become uh, sort of the forefront of renewables. Uh, could do a lot worse than, than looking at the case study uh, in, in Denmark. There. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's kind of tucked away a bit, um, you know, in uh, Jutland, on the, which is sandwiched between the North Sea and Southern Sweden. But um, since Vestas moved there, uh, Vestas was found founded relatively close there uh, over 100 years ago and, and has moved its headquarters, Vestas being the um, multinational wind turbine maker. It has become a kind of melting pot, this, this city. It's a port city. 
um, manufacturers, suppliers, traders, analysts, specialists, lawyers, academics, and just recently China's largest wind turbine makers, Xinjiang Goldwing uh, Science and Technology, opened a research office there. Um, in fact, for that city, and this is interesting uh, perhaps from this point of view, for that city, uh, the environmental and uh, green energy uh, uh, industry was the second biggest export for the city uh, after food, as it happens. Um, so there's a lot of money there and there's a lot of money being created. But I think what perhaps one of the most um, startling things visually about the city is uh, and, and and it kind of exemplifies the whole way it uh, it operates. Um, just on on a hill overlooking the city, the, there are four, uh, three, sorry, forty five meter glass boxes which house various uh, bits of of renewable tech. Um, one of them burns straw, for instance. The other burns rubbish, and there are hundreds of of trucks arrive every single day. Um, now all that is turned into uh, electricity and hot water, and in fact those produce 40% more power than they consume. Now, that kind of, um, you know, golden egg, as it were, is uh, is something that I think would be very attractive to, uh, to cities here. Yeah, the, fu- the future of renewables possibly um, is going to be how you distribute it. And can you distribute it across borders? Um, you know, like ele- you know, electricity grid running across Europe. You know, can you also have renewables grid through sea, across land masses, and that'll probably be the next forefront. I mean, what, what I really liked about this story was uh, the origins of, of Aarhus um, being a renewables hub actually comes from the, the oil crisis in the 70s, um, and that when the Danes um, were going to have you know serious problems paying for their energy, mm. um, they, they, they moved onto this path. So it's not a very long time ago, really. No, it's not. And, and to, be, to be fair, I mean, today, gross energy consumption in Denmark is, is pretty much... Uh, the two major providers are still oil uh, along with renewables. So oil still plays a major role. Uh, moving on to another very interesting story um, from the national.ae. Um, Kelsey, you wrote uh, an interview that you did with uh, one of our generation startup companies. It's an American firm, but it's it's being used in Dubai to spot or claims it can spot a Louis Vuitton it fake can, handbag. At, it can indeed. I did my fact check and they sure can. 99.1% accuracy. They can spot a fake luxury. How, so, so walk us through this. How do they? How does the tech? Do, what is the tech? What is and the how tech? Does it do it? Right. So, Vidyath at Entropy, the New York headquartered startup, which is actually actually eight years old and has been around for a while. Um, they have created a database of microscopic images of thousands of luxury products, and what it is is a microscopic camera that runs basically along the side of, say, a Louis Vuitton handbag and takes microscopic photos and runs it against its massive database. So it's a device with a camera. Exactly. It's um, And it's actually an iPod. And I asked him, why is it an iPod? And he just said, because we needed a consistent tool. It could be anything, but we just so happened to use iPods. So it's a wrap. It's a device that wraps around the iPod to give it this microscopic capability. And it runs via artificial intelligence because... Every time a photo is taken, it adds it to the database. So it only gets smarter the more photos are taken. And what they've found is um, as their database has gotten larger, the algorithm has become more accurate and its predictability, its accuracy has improved. So I just thought as a case study for applications of AI and um, 
even just an application, a startup, like Dubai kind of reaching out around the world and giving a startup a chance to solve a problem for it because- And what, um, what is the problem so exactly? The, the problem is that counterfeit goods are a bit of a scourge on um, this hub of and, an economy. And not just handbags, I assume. No, and you know, I yeah, it's they're not exactly saving the world with this, but as an application and a case study, um, it could be applied to other things. Um, so with luxury goods, Dubai kind of tasked itself with solving this issue. And they said, we just need a tech application that's just going to solve this. So they went out and found entropy, basically. Um, Because right now, the issue is there's about 20 million counterfeit luxury items, you know, called from the UAE, from Dubai's economy each year. Um, That number is going down year on year. They are having some success in policing this, but entropy kind of arms them with a tool they didn't have before. It um, gives them a technology component, whereas before they were really just, um, you know, kind doing... intelligence-led. Yeah. And um, before it really was an old-fashioned approach to a kind of new problem because counterfeiters are actually getting better at what they do. So this is only a problem that's being made worse by the rise of e-commerce, by the rise of 3D printing. Um, so it's a tech solution to a majorly tech-enabled problem, actually. A, fr- a friend of mine walked into a, a boutique in Europe and with a fake uh, bag from that same brand. And the the uh, one of the ladies in the shop spotted it from 10 yards away and said, get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, yes, you need, for the untrained eye, you need tech. But even but but for the for those for the, that work in it every day and in every day, but we'll also know, even we'll know, those. Right? But the other thing is, is the counterfeiters are getting better because right. they realize how much money can be made off of this. So hence, it needs industry. to be microscopic. It needs to be right. So the other thing that I thought was funny in talking to Vidya, the, one of the co-founders of Entropy, was they started out actually doing microscopic imaging of documents because they wanted to work with Sotheby's or Christie's and work in that kind of rarefied art world. They thought. That's where they associated the money to be. But when they really thought about it, a major market is luxury counterfeit. So this is sort of their first. So this is proof of concept. This is their first kind of proof and then, of concept. And then the, when I read your story, it was interesting that the, the founder of Entropy came up with the idea because his motorbike broke down. Right. So he was a uh, regular cross-country motorcyclist around his native India. And um, his battery died in the middle of the night. And he was left stranded in the middle of the forest pushing his motorcycle and looking at what he realized was a counterfeit battery. And he just really felt like this this is like a personal emotional problem because I'm spending good money on something that I think is legit and it ends up really um, kind of screwing you over uh, in the 11th hour. And so how do we fix this? And yeah, he's, so he's found the first market where this applies. But what's really exciting about this technology is that potentially um, these kind of microscopic uh, observations on materials, you know, could be used for uh, life-saving medical devices, pharmaceuticals, uh, transportation, all sorts of things that are uh, beholden to fine craftsmanship, but uh, are also falling prey to counterfeiters. Uh, So interesting case study, interesting company, uh, and I'm excited to see where they end up. Okay, guys, we'll leave it there. Kelsey and Chris, thanks to you both. Thanks, Mr. Vaughn. That was a pleasure. Thanks to our producer, Arthur Edison, and thank you all for listening. Please do uh, subscribe to this show on whichever platform you listen to, and of course, leave us a very nice review. Um, Thank you, uh, and do join us again next time. 